You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Alice Drager. Alice is a historian um, of medicine, um, a public speaker, a writer, and a journalist. And she is the author of four books, um, of four non-fiction books, um, Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, and the Search for Justice in Science, um, which I read when it first came out, which was, I think, a little while ago now. Also, three other books which I haven't read, but I really want to read. Um, Hermaphrodites and the Medical Invention of Sex, One of Us, Conjoined Twins and the Future of Normal, and The Talk, Helping Your Kids Navigate Sex in the Real World. And um, she is also the author of a um, fiction, uh, of a novel. It's book one of the Maddie Shanks mystery series, and it's called The Index Case. Um, and Alice, have you have you already written book two? Yes. Yes, I've actually already written book two and three, and I'm about a third of the way through book four. <laughs> I don't write that fast. Oh, I started fantastic. writing about, yeah, I started writing these about five or six years ago. And I only just released the first one uh, a few months ago. I, I kind of, well, we could talk about that if you want. But in any case, yes, there's three books written and the beginning of the fourth is written and the fifth one is mapped out. I'm not sure what number six holds. That is extremely good, uh, extremely good news because I absolutely loved the first one. Oh, thank you. And uh, it's, un- it's unusual to find a, um, a good um, murder mystery Um and this is an excellent murder mystery. Um, and it's also just, a, it's a very unusual um, character and setting that you've chosen and one in which you clearly have a lot of expertise yourself um, because the the uh, protagonist of your novel, Maddie Shanks, is doing her PhD in history of medicine and in particular on uh, focusing on museum specimen acquisition. Um, I uh, I wanted to ask before we talk more about the subject of the novel, I noticed that you're, um, you write the novels under a pseudonym. And, um, and in fact, your novels, when I Google you, and when I looked up your website, um, your association with the novels doesn't come up anywhere there. <laughs> um, I can see that you've put it into your uh, pinned post on Twitter. But um, it's it's sort of semi-secret that you're also the author of these novels. And I was very excited to find out. And even though I had been following you on Twitter for quite a while, I didn't even know you had written a mystery novel. Um, why is it that you chose to write under a pseudonym? And um, uh, 
why do you choose to, I, I guess, under-publicize um, the fact of your authorship? Yeah, those are those are two great questions. The pseudonym is mostly because I kind of want for my own sake to maintain these two different writing modes. And in some ways, you know, Alice Dreger is known publicly as such a specific thing. And in fact, this is one of the things Maddie Shanks ends up struggling with through the books is she becomes very well known for certain murders, for solving certain murders. And she struggles with that issue of her public identity versus her private identity. You know, Alice Dreger is a very particular nonfiction writer, public identity. And in some ways, I needed to give myself a space where I could really do fiction and feel like it was a different space. So the pseudonym in some ways was for my own sake. Although originally when I thought about publishing these books, I thought about not outing myself and letting people try to figure out that it was me. That said, anybody who knows my career history would immediately know that this was me because it tracks my own career history. She's not me, but the track of her career is the track of my early career, um, not in terms of murder solving, but geographically. So that that has a lot to do with why I chose to do a pseudonym. But I, I also thought, you know, if the novels took off, it would, again, allow me a space where I had a sort of secondary space as a writer where I could enjoy being that writer. And if people did things like invite me on a podcast or invite me to come speak as Molly McCallan, which is my pseudonym, that I could sort of do that as Molly McCallan and have a break from Alice Dreger. In many ways, these books are a break for myself. They're a way to process my own life. Um, so you're, then you had a very good question about why did I sort of hold back and why have I been a little bit secretive about this? The The main reason is because the world is such a rough and tumble place. And when you write something as a writer and you send it out into the world, it's it's kind of like sending your baby out into traffic these days. And, <laughs> yes. and I thought I wanted to send my baby first to the park, right? The place where I know people, the place where people would be relatively careful and friendly, and that's what I've done. I've sort of rolled it to people who I thought would enjoy it, um, particularly women. I mean, men have also really enjoyed these books, they've told me. But in some ways, these books are written very much from a woman's point of view. And I wanted to share it with other smart women as a sort of way of providing not just trashy entertainment, which I do think they are, but also to provide something more like a, a level of sympathy about career life struggles, about sexual struggles, about figuring out who you are, all these kinds of things. So it's been kind of great because it's been sort of this low level, quiet thing. And it means I've I've had responses at a rate I can really handle. I've been able to also correct typos that people found in the first one. I've hired an editor for the second one to make sure we have fewer typos in the second one. But it's it's just allowed me to sort of take care and do it a little more carefully and slowly and correct things along the way. And and I think it's been good. I mean, I hope I hope it becomes sort of big, I think, but I'm not sure. I was thinking last night, do I want it to be big or do I just want this small club of people who enjoy these? And, you know, if I had just even 100 people who were waiting for the next book, that would be really satisfying to me. And I think I have 100 people now waiting for the second, for the second book. I'm sure you do. Well, you have 101 now <laughs> because I'm also waiting eagerly for the second book. I, I absolutely love murder mysteries and I find it very difficult to find ones that are good where the plot hangs together. Yeah. Um, and um, yours is... Um, I mean, it is not an academic book. It's very deliciously indulgent. Yes. Um, <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was going for. I appreciate that. <laughs> murder mystery writing. I can see some similarities in that 
treatment of the genre with Kat Rosenfield's novels, um, who I've also interviewed on here, um, and I'm about to interview about her new novel. Um, but it has, um, uh, not to denigrate Kat's novels at all, but it's somewhat different in that it also is um, thematizing that particular area of work. So it's kind of um, uh, Agatha Christie meets Bones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was um, that was quite fascinating. I, I'd like to um, get into the themes of the novel, perhaps by diving in and um, reading a passage. Um, and I'm going to read, um, uh, by the way, so people listening to this, I'm obviously not going to reveal, I'm not going to reveal anything about the actual killings um, or the details, the plot, but there are going to be some, inevitably some minor spoilers um, as we go along. That's It's kind of impossible to discuss the novel without revealing some things about what happens. Iona, would it be helpful if I read the back cover blurb just to give people a sense of um, oh, yes, the shape of the novel? Yes. Okay. Why not? Yes, go ahead. Okay, first. I'll do that. Was this just too good a collection of cadavers? Madeline Shanks, a budding historian of anatomy, thought her trip to Philadelphia would be straightforward. She would use the archives of the 19th century Bertonian Anatomy Museum there to flesh out her dissertation research on the history of anatomical specimen acquisition. And then she would head back to Bloomington, Indiana to wrap up her PhD and launch her career as a conventional academic. But Maddie's journey takes an unexpected twist right from the start as her housing plans fall through and she reluctantly turns to a group of nuns who took her in when she was orphaned at the age of 15 to help her find a room. The lodging she obtains turns out to be in the home of Philadelphia police detective John Wolfe, a devout Catholic man Maddie quickly figures out is married, although his wife is nowhere to be seen. Maddie's plans go even further off track after she meets Dr. Wilhelm, a world-famous researcher on human growth and a patron of the museum. When he invites Maddie to his lab to see his own anatomical collection, Maddie is startled to find the body of Margaret Lovisa, a recently dead woman with a form of dwarfism, displayed anachronistically in a jar of fluid. Looking deeper into Dr. Wilhelm's work, Maddie finds so much that doesn't seem to make sense, including a troubling pattern of death among his patients with the most scientifically interesting conditions. Should she risk her nascent, fragile career to pursue the truth behind Dr. Wilhelm's collection? Can she chase down this mystery when a predator from her own past suddenly rears his ugly head? And what is she to make of the increasingly unusual relationship with Detective Wilf, the man who nicknames her the Rabbit? Brilliant. Thank you very much. So there are some kind of little minor, little minor spoilers in that. I.e., if you're the kind of person who wants to come to a novel as fresh as as humanly possible, um, then go read the novel and then come back and listen to this. Um, but for everyone else, um, I will I will continue. I don't think this will really spoil the reading experience. Um, the passage that I'm going to read is um, from Maddie's dissertation. Archaeologists have long appreciated how the lived history of a body may adhere to that body into death, how a life is literally inscribed on it, as if life were writing down a record of itself on the tablet of human form. Access to calcium, to fluoridated water, to dentistry or lack thereof, these particulars of a life in a particular civilization become quite literally part of the person through formation and preservation of the teeth. We can look in the teeth later and see the person's history, 
at least to the extent we can obtain clues about how long a person lived on the earth, what she ate through those days, whether she had access to luxuries of primitive or modern dental care. Similarly, a fatal blow, be it caused by a medieval weapon or the steering wheel of a modern car, will leave the mark of a particular society's existence on a body. The final sentence of a person's life story may be writ small or large, depending on the cause of death, on the head, the spine, and, if we have soft tissues left, on the large internal organs or on the skin. In this sense, the body becomes a manifestation of its time and place in human history, and so it becomes a monument to its own life. It is like the plant that absorbs its very particular location as it grows, recording for a moment in its absorption of soil elements and air where exactly it grew, dating itself by the carbon. So it is when the human body is formed in prenatal and postnatal development by its little world, the body absorbs its world and takes it, turns it into a record, like the tree that petrifies by becoming constructed of the minerals that surrounded it. Perhaps because the body provides at best an imperfect record, a goose-bumped, moist page on which life tries to write of itself, historians have preferred literally written texts, unchanged words on flat pages. But we should still look to every possible source in our quest to understand a life of the past. Too often, we forget that the flesh may give us direct textual records where writing will be at best indirect, filtered through the limiting sieve of a language and of a mind. Um, and I'm missing out a, a little bit. Um, some bodies, though, will record the specifically personal as it existed in the social. When we look to the body itself as a record of a life lived in that body, we are vividly reminded of how some social inscriptions on the body are specific to assumptions made about an individual's class, race, gender, maturity level, and more. There are assumptions made about a particular person's rights, worthiness, ability, value, that will, in effect, reify and amplify social distinctions that are otherwise assumed to have their basis simply in biology. So the person who is poor will wind up with a body more broken, more stooped, less repaired, because of the specific social assumptions and rules about class. In turn, that more broken, more stooped, less repaired body will be seen as evidence of its original relative unworthiness. Poverty and wealth are seen to prove themselves in bones and teeth and flesh. Similarly, the person who is enslaved will have the marks of slavery impressed upon the body by the master, as if somehow this is merely fate. In human life, the word may be made flesh. Um, I'm, I'm missing out a, a little bit here as well. Um, the charming American myth that anyone can become anything through will and determination and hard work. It fails to recognise not only the natural history of any human body, what teratology, which is the study of, of monsters and physical anomalies, what teratology, pathology, injury and the normal ravages of development and ageing will bring, but also disregards the social histories that will be sometimes recorded in flesh, insults, demands, values and bonds. 
stories of who was lovable and unlovable, who was a source of honour or of shame. So tell tell us, uh, maybe start a little bit from um, the discipline that that uh, your heroine Maddie is um, is studying. Maybe you could compare it a little bit with what you were studying in your own PhD and how a kind of study of abnormal bodies, what it can tell us about uh, society, history and society and societal attitudes. If that's not too open-ended a question. Um, <laughs> no, that's fine. It's so interesting that you would read that passage because I've I've never heard anybody read that passage aloud to me before. And I was so, I, I was getting goosebumps listening to you because that what you read there is actually a book I've been wanting to write. <laughs> and ah. <laughs> my life is such that it is insanely busy with other things. So I write these novels mostly in the middle of the night. And during the day, I'm very, very busy with running a newspaper and dealing with my other career and dealing with family issues and everything else. And I've wanted to write a book about the politics of anatomy. Um, and I, I've written sort of one essay based on that. It's an essay called Visiting Your Leg, which is about um, having parts of your body removed from you and then visiting them, um, which can happen with amputations and those sorts of things. And this, that book that I've always envisioned would be about exactly this, the way that we think of the body as being simply anatomical, but that it is in this dialogue with the social so Maddie is earning her degree from Indiana University in the department of, I think I called it history and philosophy of science and medicine. And I earned my degree from Indiana University in a department that was called the Department of History and Philosophy of Science. It didn't have history of medicine in it. And I ended up wandering into history of medicine with the permission of my dissertation committee and encouragement of my dissertation committee. So she and I are studying sort of similar things, and we would both be considered historians of anatomy, which is not a common term. Um, it's a term I called myself years ago because I was trying to capture that I do history of science, but I also do history of medicine. And in our fields, often people divide themselves into history of science or history of medicine, but I was trying to broach the two of those together. So I call Maddie in the book a historian of anatomy. And that's also where I'm coming from. My dissertation, though, was not on the history of specimen acquisition in museums, which is what her dissertation is on. My dissertation was on the history of what French and British physicians and scientists did in the late 19th century, so the late 1800s, to make sense of people who were then called hermaphrodites, people who were born with body types that didn't um, accord to the standard male or the standard female type. So they might have had genitals that were in between, or they might have the sex organs of one on the outside, but the other sex on the inside. They might have some blend on the inside. So I was very interested in what 19th century doctors and scientists did to make sense of people who presented with blurry sex types. And the reason I was interested in that was because in the late 19th century, physicians and scientists were confronted with the question of what to do about women's demands for rights that men held and what to do about the fact that people were starting to indicate that they wanted to have same-sex relationships, which were, of course, illegal and considered immoral. So scientists and physicians were faced with this problem of what to do about this social situation. And their opinion was, well, this is all simple biology. Sex only comes in two types. 
So they insisted very strongly that there were only two sex types. And what they tried to do with people who were blurry was to claim that they weren't really blurry. There was It just looked blurry. There was really a, a sex type at the basis. And they focused in on the gonads, ultimately, the ovaries or the testes. So Maddie is studying something different than I am, but both she and I are interested in the question of what happens to people who challenge social norms. And those include people with different body types. So the index case, the first book in the series, she ends up dealing with the question of what happened to a whole population of people with various forms of dwarfism. And um, she's also looking at other museum specimens of all types. So there's a time in there where she's talking about a conjoined twin specimen. And there's one time where she's talking about a specimen of a testy that was taken out of a woman who had a form of intersex um, so she's she's dealing with the same sorts of questions. And at the same time, she's also struggling with the question of herself being abnormal. She's not physically, she doesn't have any physical atypicality. She's not unusual physically in any way other than being a little bit short. But she does have this sense in her life that she doesn't fit in, that she doesn't make sense in the normal social conventional system for various reasons. And so she's really struggling with that question herself, too, of how to think about her own place in the world. And this dissertation writing that she's doing, there are hints within it that she's not just talking about other people, but that she's specifically talking about herself. And as you'll recall, when she's when that that passage of her dissertation appears in the book, it's because Detective Wolf is reading it aloud to her. And um, the consequence of that is she's listening to her own dissertation in a way she's never heard before. And so it was super interesting to me as you were reading it, because I was listening to my own writing in a way I'd never heard before. Somebody else was reading it to me. So it echoes that scene in this really beautiful way. Did that answer your question, Leona? Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, one thing you say, um, uh, at one point in the book, I can't remember who says that, uh, which of the characters um, uh, says this, but um, there's a passage which says, the common assumption is that doctors and scientists back then had all the power. Because they have so much power now, people think that must have been even more true back in the days of things like the brutal enslavement of Africans and the legal subjugation of women. But in earlier times, when medicine and science were relatively less mature, some people with unusual anatomies managed to maintain the upper hand while they were alive anyway, particularly if they were white and came from money, but even sometimes if they didn't. An interesting body could sometimes give you power to overcome points against you for race and class and gender. Um, could you say more about uh, do you have some examples of, of interesting bodies that gave people power? Yeah, that, the passage you were reading there is Maddie talking to uh, Dr. Nicholas Desjardins. And Nick is a psych clinical psychologist that she meets at the museum. And he, um, he has a particular form of dwarfism, pituitary dwarfism. So he's very short. He's about a little over three feet tall. And he's talking to her about, he's asking her about what her dissertation is about. And she assumes correctly that he actually knows all of this because he's also very fascinated by the history of what's happened to people like him. And so when he's asking her, what's your dissertation about? She says, I'm sorry if I've, this is all obvious to you, but this is what I find about the 19th century. That's actually all based on uh, a section of the book I wrote called One of Us, Conjoined Twins in the Future of Normal. 
and I think it's chapter four, if I remember correctly, it's about the history of the display of people with unusual body types. And what it does is it goes back and traces when people with those unusual body types sometimes displayed themselves and earned the money and the power that came with that. And so the best example of that is Chang and Eng Bunker, who were known as the Siamese twins. You may see pictures of them all over the place, but in, in, American English anyway, the term Siamese twins is used to mean any form of conjoined twins. But the Siamese twins were a particular pair of twins, Chang and Ang Bunker, who were born in Siam, what is now Thailand. They were actually of Chinese descent. And they were born joined um, with a little bit of liver and a little bit of skin. So they were joined kind of at the waist with a very small amount of conjoinment. They otherwise had full bodies each. Um, Today, this would practically be outpatient surgery to separate them. They would just ligate it off. They would basically tie it off successively or just go in and do the surgery and separate them. It would be like so easy to separate them today, but they were not separated and they spent their life joined together. Um, And they lived into old age, actually. They ended up marrying two sisters and having a large number of children. One of them had 10 children and the other one had uh, 11 children. And the fascinating thing about Chang and Eng Bunker is that they were at first displayed, kind of used in a particular way. But then they, they were very smart men, and they managed to sort of take control of their own display. And they made an absolute fortune. They traveled the world. They got people to pay to come see them. They drummed up publicity. They sold tokens, you know, swag, basically. <laughs> Um, I actually have, I wish, I wish we were doing video. I don't normally wish we were doing video, but I can send you a picture of this. I have a 19th century item that was sold. That was a little ceramic piece made in Germany. That was a, um, a token of the two of them that was probably sold in conjunction with one of their exhibitions. And it was actually given to me by one of their descendants who I got to know because I was writing about this stuff and this descendant contacted me and we had dinner together and got to know each other and became friends. So that was the perfect example of when somebody actually seized upon their unusual body and managed to turn it to their own benefit. Um, the great irony, too, is that Chang and Eng Bunker ended up setting up farms in the south of America, and they ended up owning slaves. So they actually owned other people, um, which was very kind of historically ironic because they were the sort of people who normally would be used and exhibited, but instead they were the people in power so much that they actually owned other human beings. Um, after the Civil War, their their slaves were um, set free, which actually caused them financial problems. And they went back on the road again because they needed to make money again. So one of the things I explore in that book, One of Us, is the issue that today when people with unusual body types like conjoined twins are displayed on television shows, for example, they don't make any money typically. The only people making the money are the television producers and the people involved in the production because the attitude is, well, this is journalism, so we don't pay the subject, which is completely ridiculous. So there's an essay I wrote a while back that's a humor piece, but it's serious. It's called Dr. Oz Can't Afford Me. And it has to do with when I was invited to be on the Dr. Oz show to talk about a man who had a conjoined twin attached to him that was what's called a parasitic conjoined twin. It's not really parasitic, but it doesn't have its own brain. So it's just body parts attached to him. And I was kind of disgusted that they weren't paying this man to be on the show because they were clearly exploiting him. And my attitude is if he wants to be exploited, fine, but pay the guy. And they wouldn't pay him and they wouldn't pay me, uh, even though I would be asked to participate in this exploitation. And so the piece I wrote, Dr. Oz Can't Afford Me, is the really about the fact that 
that whole system of exhibition can't afford, <laughs> from their point of view, to be honest about what they're doing, that they're exhibiting people for freakish um, for freakish attention, and that they're making money off of it. My feeling is that people with unusual bodies want to make money off their bodies. That's totally fine, but they should be the people making the money. So, I mean, mm. compared to it, for example, when a very tall person becomes a basketball player successfully, obviously it takes more than height to be a basketball player, but basketball players who are very tall are making money off of their unusual bodies. People who are incredibly attractive, compellingly attractive, make money as models you know, I think that's fine. My feeling is that if you have an unusual body type, you should be able to profit from it yourself if there's a profit to be made from it, and if that's what you want to pursue. So there's one more piece I wrote that also attaches to this. It's a piece called Lavish Dwarf Entertainment, which is about my friend Danny Black, who has a chondroplasia dwarfism. And he, for a long time, ran an entertainment business that um, featured people with dwarfisms doing various kinds of entertainment. And, you know, he made money off of it and made money off of himself playing Cupid or playing a leprechaun on St. Patrick's Day. And that essay explores the sort of discomfort that I feel at the same time, the sympathy that I feel for Danny. And Danny is actually one of the people who is... He's not a character in this book, The Index Case, but that relationship with him informed some of the characters in the book. Um, I've known a number of people, I, I've worked with a number of people with various forms of dwarfism, and so they influenced the various characters in the book. Mm, thank you. Um, so uh, I will link to any articles or, or books or anything else that is mentioned in the show notes to the podcast. Um but I also published the podcast um, as an article in Aria magazine. It goes out to patrons first, and then a week or two later, it comes out as a public version. And uh, with your permission, if if you want, uh, I will put the photo um, of the Chang twins um, sure. in, into the into the Ario uh, quote unquote article. It's really just a big a nice big link sure. <laughs> that you can pretty link that you can click on with show notes below. Um, uh, great. So if anybody is listening to this on the Spotify, iTunes, or one of the other apps, and you want to see the photo, I will put that in the Ario magazine version of this. Um, you talk about a shift um, at, in the book from, um, I'm going to read this passage again. Um, the further back you went, the easier it became to know something about the person who had become the anatomical artifact. So I think this is your um, your protagonist um, speaking here. Whichever doctor or surgeon or researcher had scored the specimen would have published a report on it. But medicine had changed in the last hundred years, pulling to the front the doctor or researcher, receding to the back the specimen's source. In most cases nowadays, the specimen was not even discussed as if it had ever come from a real body. It was just tissues or cells or genes, devoid of any personal history. And um, by the way, apologies to everybody for lisping slightly, but I have, I have strep throat, so my tongue is weirdly swollen. So if I sound a Sorry little bit odd, <laughs> apologies. <laughs> um, you... The protagonist um, sees the specimen, um, the specimen of the body of the woman with uh, dwarfism, Margaret Lovisa, who you mentioned when you were reading the back cover blurb, um, in her um, supervisor's office. And she feels especially disturbed by it because 
Her body remained, and yet her history felt lost. Um, could you say something about what what you think motivated that shift away from um, away from identifying the person and storytelling to a purely medicalization to being referred to in terms of specimen tissue, etc. Yeah, if you talk with physicians, they'll always believe that the reason that shift occurred was a, a improvement in the understanding of patient confidentiality. That in the past, it was terrible that they told you the person's name and showed you their face in the photographs and gave you the history and you could identify people. And that things got better because they made everybody anonymous. Remember that in the 19th century, there, of course, was no internet. And it would have been extremely unusual for anybody who was outside of the medical profession to look at a medical journal or a medical textbook. So when physicians were publishing all that information, it would have been the case that it didn't get out on the street, right, of who these people were and what their histories were and all of their information that was provided in the medical journals. So the physicians then at the time had every reason to believe they were only talking among themselves. Today, obviously, it's much more easy to access medical literature and to even look it up simply online using the internet. So today, in order to anonymize patients, we have to hide all of that information. But I don't think that the shift occurred simply because of a greater respect for patient confidentiality and a concern for the way that the technology was changing and the access was changing. I think the situation also changed because, frankly, physicians started to become more powerful and less interested in giving any humanizing identity to the people in the medical journal articles. Medicine became a big industry, and it became a powerhouse industry. And the way that physicians accessed power through that was to do research and to publish that research. Publishing the research, you don't get a lot of points for publishing a cute story about someone who came in with a weird condition, with one exception that I'll mention in a minute. You really get power through showing lots of information and showing this sort of objectified stance. So it was really that objectified stance, I think, that created that cultural shift towards that objectified stance that has that sort of veil of science around it, even when it's not really very scientific, that caused physicians to sort of fade into the background who specific patients were. But I'll tell you, it is absolutely the case that in some parts of medical journals, you can figure out who's in the medical journal article. So when I was doing my book on conjoined twins, I looked at all the medical literature I could on conjoined twins and languages that I could read. And what I ended up finding was that there were cases where they would take a black and white sort of horror picture, you know, laid out on a bedsheet photo of a pair of conjoined twin babies, and they would black out their eyes as if you couldn't tell who they were. And if you looked in the newspapers whatsoever, you could figure out exactly who those babies were, what their names were, who their parents were, where they lived, and all the information about them, because conjoined twins frequently end up in the news. And so this idea that somehow the physicians were protecting the privacy of the patient was just crazy. In fact, what was happening was this real dehumanization in those articles. And I think it failed to appreciate the dehumanization occurring. I mentioned that there's one exception where you can get points in medicine today for sort of showing off of um, something that's freaky. And that's the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the top medical journals in the world, has a, a feature every week called Images in Clinical Medicine, I think it's called. And it basically is just some bizarro condition, and they've got a photograph of some bizarre thing that has occurred. So it might be a particular skin condition that's gotten extraordinarily out of control, and they'll show a picture of that. 
or it'll be some really weird x-ray where somebody accidentally managed to get something up their rectum or purposely get something up their rectum and there's an x-ray of that. There was one I remember well where all it was was a it was a sonogram of a fetus in the womb and it was a male fetus and the fetus happened to be peeing when the sonogram was taken and it was it had a perfect arc of pee captured in the sonogram. So it was like a little kid taking a whiz and it was published as the image of the week purely because it was funny. I mean, that's all it was. Mm, It was mm. funny. (laughs) That is the one place where medicine still sort of openly does this sort of, ha ha, look at this really weird thing. And you get points for it in medicine. But otherwise, typically throughout the medical literature, you have this objectified stance. And that's part of what Maddie is struggling with in this book is the question of objectivity and subjectivity and this problem of should she go with her gut instinct that something here is very wrong? Or is it, in fact, not the case that something's very wrong and Dr. Wilhelm's collection is actually perfectly understandable? And of course, from his point of view, the collection it makes perfect sense. It's a scientific collection. But there's something in her gut that keeps telling her this just isn't right, that the thing doesn't feel right. And that, that's why she begins to look into it. There is this um, ongoing theme in the novel um, of to what extent a person's body is integral to who they are as a person. Um, And I was actually uh, weirdly reminded somewhat of um, the novel Altered Carbon. Um, I don't know that one. And, um, oh, it's a, so do not watch the Netflix series. No, uh, I'm sorry, I don't watch a lot of television. (laughs) Perfect. But the novel is, is, I think, one of the best um, uh, sci-fi novels ever written. Um, and I interviewed the author, William Richard Morgan. Um, it's a, uh, so it's a novel about, um, a dystopic futuristic society in which they have worked out a way to re-sleeve, as they call it, people, um, to upload consciousness and decant it into a new physical body. And the plot of the, it's also a murder mystery, actually. It's also a whodunit. But the plot of the novel is very, the world of the uh, um, of the novel and the plot of the novel is really centered around the ethical questions that this raises and the kind of philosophical questions this raises about what it means to be a person. And um, uh, I, I saw you also coming at this um, question, of course, from a completely different angle. You say at one point, um, uh, this is Maddie who is uh, talking to um, Wolf, the police officer in whose house she is staying, um, who's, um, and they are talking about organ donation at this point. And he says that although he has signed, he has a, an organ donor card, he isn't willing to, he doesn't feel it would be right to allow his wife, his wife who is uh, seriously ill and in a coma, to allow, if she should die, to allow her parts to be harvested. And he he says, um, and she says that she she can understand this this feeling, which in his in his case is more closely linked to a Catholic belief in the resurrection of the body at the last day, and therefore you need a body that is integral in order to be resurrected. And she says, if we speak of a person as if they are not somehow associated with their bodies, their body parts, what does it mean to speak of a person? 
Yeah. How much can you take away before it isn't that person anymore? I think you and I have the same sense of personhood, that it requires the body of the person somehow. So I thought this fed into a lot of other topics, some of which you raise in the novel. Um, For example, um, the topic of um, eugenics. To what extent, at what point is something simply a disability or a disease um, that we want to eradicate, if at all possible? And at what point is that thing a so integrally connected with the the whole kind of being of the people who um, have that condition that we don't want to eradicate it, that it's actually facilitating something unique. And I know there are a lot of debates about um, autism research that, that center on this, this kind of dilemma. Um, would you like to say a bit about that? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And th- this, again, is one of those places where... Um, the the book is sort of a shadow of a nonfiction book I would love to write about anatomy and identity. So a, a lot of my early work before Galileo's Middle Finger was about this question of the relationship of anatomy and identity. And today there are real questions in my mind about what identity is and what personhood is because we've created such a world where basically our personhood exists in a way as an as an amalgam of information. And it has less to do with our body. I remember I was in the line at the Detroit airport one day, which is my home airport that I leave usually from. And I was in the security line and there was a sign up there from the government that said, you are your ID. And what it meant was don't lose your ID. (laughs) And if you lose your ID, report it right away because it's really important to report if you've lost your ID. But the idea that you are your, your ID, your ID card, your ID information is such an odd concept, historically speaking, because historically speaking, you weren't your ID, you were your body. And so we've reached the point where we can have identity theft in a big way. And that's a really strange moment historically, because in the past, identity theft would have been relatively difficult to pull off since the person was associated, you know, the person was the person, the body. But now we have such an identity that's external to us that in some ways it exists independent of us and someone can take it. Without taking our body, they can take our identity. And that's a very strange moment historically and a really weird thing to think of. So I've been thinking for a long time about the question of at what point we have identity that is completely independent of anatomy. Will we reach that point? And, and that is the sci-fi point of, you know, do we reach a point where somehow something exists and it's no longer associated with the physical body? So Maddie's kind of playing with these ideas in part because I like playing with these ideas. Um, But obviously she's having these conversations chiefly in dialect with Wolf, who remains throughout the the rest of the books, uh, the second character in the book. There there are three central characters who remain very steadily throughout the books, and that's Maddie, uh, Detective Wolf, and Maddie's best friend Liz, who becomes more important later in the series in terms of her life. Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, the the discipline seems to throw up um, um, interest-specific questions, also of kind of ownership, um, because you are um, you're dealing with um, people's dead bodies, which have been preserved for historical purposes, um, and sometimes as as Maddie's um, supervisor, who I forget her 
I forget his name, um, the doctor who has the who has the specimen. Well, he's not her supervisor, has, but he he's a patron uh, of the museum, Doctor Wilhelm. Oh yes, no, he's not. Sorry, I thought he was. Um, I was getting confused. Um, he's not her PhD supervisor, right. but he's yes, Doctor Wilhelm. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, Doctor Wilhelm. Uh, Doctor Wilhelm argues that you know sometimes you need full body specimens because you are particularly interested in developmental things, and uh, therefore these are um, holistic um, anomalies that affect the the way the growth of the entire body. So you can't just have a few uh, cells on a, on a plate somewhere. Right. You need to actually see the entire body, and um, of course, once a person is dead, they are they have no consciousness. They don't know what is what is happening to their body. But nevertheless, people very frequently have quite specific wishes. And their relatives have quite specific wishes as to what should happen to the body because they still feel that it's imbued with personhood. And uh, at one point, Maddie is talking to um, to Sher- one of the other characters, Shirley, um, about Native American specimens and Native American um, archaeology on Native American burial sites, which has become controversial because some people don't want archaeology to be done there and they don't want DNA testing to be done there. Um, But without that kind of archaeology and DNA testing, we we can't get a clear grasp of what happened historically and it obscures our ability to add to really the sum total of knowledge. Um, including knowledge about Native American history. Yeah, I think it, ra- it raises a question, right, of who who has the right. I mean, <laughs> we we act as if science needs to know all, but I, I I think there's an open question about whether or not we need science to know everything, and should we put limits on that? You know, the the book The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, um, in some ways, echoes this question of. Is it the case that if a good is going to come out of a body, that scientists and doctors should be allowed to do whatever they want with the remains of a body? And I think I think there's a question about that. I mean, I think that's an open question and something we have to negotiate. Um, there there are instances where where for reasons of public health, a government will literally take over a body against the wishes of a family in order to deal with a public health problem. So, for example, with specific disease outbreak. The government may control a body um, to the point where the family loses its rights. I mean, just an example of that, even with living people, was during COVID when people were in the hospital and dying. Their family members, in many cases, were not allowed to come and be with them dying. That upset me greatly. Um, Mm. It's extremely psychically disturbing to people to lose family members when they're not with them, in many cases. And I definitely had to question whether or not that was worth the public health um, benefit that was being gained by keeping people away from their loved ones dying in the hospitals. But the the government sometimes will take control. Medicine and science will sometimes take control. And this is one of the big themes in this book, as you picked up on, is the question of who controls what body. You know, it, it's interesting because we're, we're talking about that there's this sort of shadow book in here that I never wrote. Um, the second book in the series, The Difficult Subject, which I'm just in the final process of editing, um, that book was also written a while ago, but I cut some stuff out of it to make it a little bit shorter. 
for reasons we can talk about if you like, The Difficult Subject was actually written first. Mm. The Index Case was the second book I wrote. Even though it's the first book in the series, it's actually the second book I wrote. I first wrote The Difficult Subject. And The Difficult Subject has in the background a different shadow book, which is a book about human sexuality. And it's a book about, it's a philosophy of human sexuality that the person who is has a suspicious death in the book, Alex Sugar, she's dead when Maddie comes onto the scene and Maddie ends up investigating her death. Um, she was in the midst of writing a book that was about human sexuality. And it's actually a book that I've sketched out. And uh, Alex Sugar is actually an imitation of my own name, Alice Dreger, because when I started to, I had been thinking about writing these books for many years and I'd sort of been taking mental notes for like 20 years. And I got to the point where I really hated my public identity as Alice Dreger, where people thought I was this and they thought I was that and they hated me for this or liked me for that. And I just felt so misunderstood. And so my spouse actually suggested to me that I sit down and write the first book in the mystery series. And the first thing I do is kill myself off. He said, name a character, Alice Dreger, and kill her (laughs) and have your protagonist solve her murder. So I was like, that's hilarious. I should do that. So I created a character who I named close to mine, Alice, Alex Sugar. And for various reasons, I was almost named Alex as a child. And, um, and in the book, I kill her off and Maddie has to solve her, her death. But that book that Alex is writing when she died is another shadow book that I would love to write about human sexuality, but has never actually been written. So these books kind of trace these shadow books that I would like to write. Um, that are nonfiction books, but that the nonfiction book world is a very difficult place right now to deal with. The publishing industry is a crap show. And in some ways, I just want to be writing what I want to be writing. And these books, writing these books in the middle of the night, allow me to get those ideas out while also writing fiction, which is a totally different kind of writing and one that I totally enjoy writing in the middle of the night. These intricate plots with lots of characters with the freedom to go beyond the real has just been such a blast. <laughs> I, I, the first, when I was writing the first book, I kept saying to my spouse, he thought it was really funny. I kept saying like, fiction is totally different from nonfiction because you're not bound by facts. And he was like, I know. And I just kept saying this like it was a revelation, right? <laughs> that fiction involves getting past the facts. But I had, I had been so long hampered and, I enjoy the hampering of facts when I write nonfiction. It's really fun. But writing fiction is its own incredibly enjoyable thing because I can do whatever I want with these characters and say whatever I want to say. And it's really different. I um, So one of the things that, that struck me very much um, about you in the past, of course, I may be getting something about you wrong. And having just said that you get very, you get, you get, naturally irritated by people misunderstanding and misrepresenting so just correct me if I'm misrepresenting (laughs) but um, one of the surprising things to me is that um, although you are a self-described I think social justice leftist um, and um, you are very much um, you take a, a very liberal approach to sexuality and especially also to trans issues perhaps not especially but including to trans issues, um, you uh, nevertheless are um, friendly with controversial Michael Bailey, and um, I. Uh, there's a one video of yours which I hope I can find it and put it in the show notes, in which you're talking about um, transitioning in terms of sexuality, and I feel that there has been a, on the part of many trans activists and people, there's a fear that 
being trans will be seen as, as quote unquote, just a perversion. Right. I actually sort of think there's nothing wrong with most perversions, um, but will be, will therefore not be taken seriously. And so people have a tendency to deny that there is any connection with, um, sexuality here. Right. And what you say in the video is that the sense of oneself as gendered, the sense, the sense of a woman's sense of herself as feminine, for example, or a man's sense of himself as masculine, um, is, uh, strongest uh, in romantic and sexual situations. And therefore, it's, um, it's a perfectly valid and, and also powerful motive for transitioning is that you want to feel um, like you are, are uh, if you are a man and you transition to become a woman, you want to feel like a woman in that act of in the sex act and in the sexual situations. And um, I I could relate to that. I could really relate to that. I mean, when I was an academic, for example, I felt like basically a sexless android most of the time. <laughs> yes. This woman is a very nice android. We will put her on our committee or, yes. um, or we publish her article. Um, and when I, the times at which I really felt feminine were um, entirely in these sexual or kind of quasi-sexual situations, i.e. in choices of dress and makeup and things like that. And um, uh, obviously um, in sex itself and when dancing Argentine tango. <laughs> so I think that there is, um, um, as a result, I think you also defend Michael Bailey's idea of the auto autogynophilia, that it's there's nothing kind there's nothing sort of intrinsically sinister about wanting to enjoy a feeling of genderedness within sex and this is also kind of the place where i um i know you recently um debated colin wright and colin is actually a friend of mine and i do have quite a lot of sympathy with his views but um i disagree fundamentally disagree with his idea that there is no, people don't have any intrinsic sense of gender. Yeah. I mean, Colin himself has the most masculine looking, um, or he did have the most masculine looking flat. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen his most recent flat with um, the most bachelor paddy decor and, and, and the most kind of typical, mostly typically masculine interests and kind of color scheme and whiskey collection and, um, you know, all in a totally charming way. But I find it really hard to believe that there isn't a sense of gender there, maybe not yeah. conscious, but, right. um, you know, there's a kind of, um, uh, I, I, tend, I suspect that gender is actually innate, a sense of masculineness or feminineness. And what changes is historically what we view as masculine or feminine, but we still are most people gravitating towards one or the other and choosing those things. And that makes us feel more, feels more congenial to us. And the reason it feels more congenial, even if the actual kind of manifestations change, like in the past, it used to be in the 18th century, it was men who wore high heels, for example. Right. Um, even if, even if the specifics change, nevertheless, 
we're gravitating towards the things that that the kind of sexual, I guess, and appearance-based and attraction-based manifestations that go with the sex that we feel most aligned with because there is some psychological and intrinsic urge to match that with how we match that that social presentation with how we feel inside. Sorry, I didn't mean to make a long speech <laughs> That's in, okay. in your interview. That's okay. But, yeah, the the, inter- the uh, debate with Colin was actually just last night. And it's funny because when we finished it, I was glad it was done because I was a little bit stressed about it. I, I do dis- mm-hmm. agree with Colin on various things, but I think he's been overly simplistic about sex and gender. And I'd like to have more subtlety injected into that. But I remember after that, I had to rush off to a meeting. I was thinking, oh, it's going to be fun to talk to Iona in the morning about the novel because it'll be something much more relaxing <laughs> than it has been. Um, but it's so funny. You're going to love the difficult subject because the difficult subject gets into these. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't play so much with gender and sexuality, but it explores all these concepts of sexuality of what is appropriate what is inappropriate what is shameful what is acceptable I think you're really going to enjoy that book because it gets into these issues and toys with these issues and in that book there's a character who's introduced who actually again stays with the novel series and it's a character who is somebody who's autogynophilic and that character is also bi-gendered so lives part of their life as a man and part of their life as a woman is a biological male named Everett Sophie Inskeep and Everett Sophie Inskeep lives um, part of his life as a man, but also part of their life as a woman. And that is based on a person who really uh, exists and who I've met, Richard Alice Novick, who is a, psycholog- a psychiatrist who has written a book called Alice in Genderland. Not about me, it's about them, <laughs> who lives part of his life as a man and part of her life as a woman. And um, and is pretty out about that being about autogynophilia, the sense of being aroused by the idea of becoming or being female. So I don't make a big deal of it in book two, but that character gets introduced. And it's one of the ways that sexuality is introduced to Maddie. And Maddie comes upon this whole sort of new realm of thinking, which is about bodies and body types, but is specifically about human sexuality. And that book gets uh, ramps up even more in terms of thinking about sexuality. And, you know, as you know, in the first book, part of what Maddie is struggling with is the question of her own sexuality, not in terms of her orientation. She's very much a typical straight female, but in terms of what she should do with her sexuality, you know, should she sleep with this guy? Should she hold back? Should she pursue a relationship with somebody? She's she's sort of in the midst of that young woman feeling of wanting to be free and at the same time being very conscious of all the strictures put upon her in her life as a young woman. Yes, I was I thought it was interesting the way in which you the range of of um sexual experiences um that you catalog there within the within the novel the range of experiences that happened to Maddie and um the kind of um I guess the the ethical range that they span is quite impressive and interesting. So you have a, a you portray a, a um uh, a definitely um an unquestionably abusive relationship but also um for example a relationship that is quite um ambiguous um a relationship between a graduate student and a lecturer or um in the american terminology i don't know um a professor mm-hmm. a professor yes um who ends up being part of her dissertation committee so there are actual con- there are actual kind of professional conflicts yes. um, at stake there, 
but um i i think that you um i'm happy that you don't portray that in this kind of black and white way as the the senior person with more power abusing the junior person with less power right right um no, Maddie has a lot of power in those relationships and she knows it and she she enjoys it. I mean, she enjoys the mm. fact that she's an attractive, you know, she's she's described as sort of plain faced, but her body is nice and she enjoys her body. And so she doesn't mind using it to enjoy herself in life. Um, and right, when, when the novel opens, she's in a relationship with somebody who's a faculty member and she hadn't meant to be in a relationship with a faculty member, but he becomes a faculty member of the department and causes this great awkwardness in terms of she and he want to keep having sex, but they can't keep having sex under the rules. So it creates this tension. But she has other relationships. You know, it's funny, somebody who was asking me for a copy of the novel the other day asked me, you know, is there anything I should know? And I said, well, you should know it's, it, there's sexually explicit scenes in it. And I, and I said, um, and it does include gratuitous sex. And I said, but it's not gratuitous to the plot. It's just gratuitous in her life. And the person next to me who had read the novel and I were both laughing because we were laughing about the idea that the book is full of gratuitous sex, but it's integral to the plot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No. And she, this is a, this is a big part of the series is the, this running theme of Maddie's sexuality and her, her trying to be a person who's sexually free in the world, but who has to recognize that sexual freedom is really limited in the world, especially for women. And because it presents danger um, at a lot of turns and also a lot of judgment at a lot of turns. So she's trying to figure out sort of how to have what she wants within the reality of the world. And yeah, no, it definitely does reject the idea that there's somehow, if a faculty member is having sex with a student, that it's the faculty member with the power. Um, I, I don't see that as the way the reality is all the time, for sure. Mm, yeah. I mean, I tend to think that in a relationship, this isn't faculty member and student, but in a relationship that has a large age gap, it's the younger person who generally has the power. Um, and I have written about this, so I'll I'll link to that. Or, in the show or a particular type of power. Right. A particular yes, type of yes. power. Yeah. And, you know, the abusive relationship in the book is actually based on an experience I myself had, although Maddie is younger in that abusive relationship than I was. Mm. I was um, mm. older than she was in the book. And and there she, again, struggles with the question of, you know, did she willingly participate? And it's in book two where that really gets unpacked. In the difficult subject, it becomes unpacked. And Maddie ends up in a conversation with a sexologist who's, you know, a sex researcher who helps her think about what exactly happened at that time in her life and helps her understand that it absolutely was abuse and she shouldn't think of it in any other way. But at the same time, she shouldn't let it limit what she can do in the future with her own sense of sexuality. I'm I'm so sorry that you went through that. Yeah, it was lousy. (laughs) And uh, I don't, you know, the reason I don't openly talk about it a lot is because I think that if you do, then that becomes such an adhered part of your identity publicly that people can't see other things that you've done. I've seen that happen with, I mean, look at Monica Lewinsky, right? Who, mm. you know, happened to have sex with the president who then he lied about it. And it's become sort of her entire identity for the most part. And I don't want to have that happen where a relationship I should not have been in becomes the central thing of my adult identity. So it's mm. it's not that I haven't talked about it out of shame. I don't think I have anything to be ashamed of. The guy who did it to me is the person who should be ashamed of it. Um, but at the same time, I have chosen not to talk about it a lot because I don't want people to sort of 
um, construct me as simply being this girl that was abused by a teacher in, you know, when she was young. So I, mm. I don't deal with it a lot publicly, but in the book, I'm using all of those feelings that I had about that relationship and about what happened to me and really trying to channel it into the book to explore how do you go forward with a positive sense of sexuality when you begin your sexual life in an abusive relationship, which is what happened to me. Mm. Yeah. I think that we, um, um, I feel that there's sometimes a tendency to catastrophize and it's difficult to strike a balance because you obviously don't want to tell somebody this bad experience that happened to you is, was really no big deal. Right. But at the other, on the other hand, I find it very dispiriting when people are like, this person is a victim or a survivor of X and Y. Um, that shapes everything. Yes. Uh, because people are, um, uh, you know, have different degrees of resilience I felt I felt quite sympathetic to um, Richard Dawkins. Uh, he was completely dragged for this when he said that he was touched up by uh, a teacher at school mm-hmm. um, who would occasionally like grab his penis yeah. when he was a boy. And he says, this actually didn't affect me um, in the long term in any way. <laughs> you know, it was no big deal to me. And people took this as saying that he was somehow condoning this or implying that um nobody who feels traumatized has a right to feel that way and i just didn't read it in that sense at all what he was saying was something bad can happen to you and it can nevertheless be just you can be resilient enough that um it just in the long scheme of things just doesn't matter at all yeah the the way that it surfaces and then submerges over and over again for maddie is very much my own experience that it you know, comes up and then disappears and comes up and disappears in somewhat unpredictable ways. And so that's part of what I was trying to capture in the first book. But it occurs again in the second and third book where she's struggling with that that question of her sexual history, where it sometimes just comes up and disrupts her sexual life without warning in ways mm-hmm. that are very mm-hmm. painful and very inconvenient. Um, so it, it does echo that. I think also one thing that you can um, do in the novel is show that when you have a, an abusive relationship, um, unless we're talking about full-on, complete kind of violent coercion, um, there is a dynamic there, and you can explore the ways in which the the person who was victimized contributed to that dynamic without necessarily blaming them, because you're not you're right. not kind of apportioning blame there. You're trying to understand um, how that happened, and sort of what could have been done differently, obviously couldn't have been done differently at the time because uh, uh, because you develop that kind of knowledge and understanding later. Mm-hmm. But if you had gone back being the person you currently are, say if Maddie had gone back being the person she became, um, she would have dealt differently with the jerk, as he's called, uh, throughout the novel. Um, and that's, it's, I don't often find people doing that, um, both um, refraining from any kind of victim blaming, but also being interested in um, how how victims also contribute to those dynamics, because dynamics always have two sides. And that doesn't mean there isn't one person to blame and the other not to blame. That's a separate issue. Sorry, go ahead. Right. She has, there is this one scene relatively later in the book where she and Wolf are arguing over uh, the question of culpability 
And he's asking her to what degree she thinks she's responsible for that relationship and the sequelae of that relationship that led to death. Um, And, you know, she sees herself as culpable and he's trying to get her to understand that there's a limit to our culpability that even when we participated in something, it doesn't mean we intended to have all of the bad things that came from it. Mm -hmm. And so they have this very intense discussion over the question of culpability. And it, it actually is one of those places where in the first book, it's cementing the relationship between the two of them that is very, very intense by the end of the book and remains intense through other, later books as well. Um, you know, th- that's part of the reason why. So so the index case was never supposed to be written. The difficult subject, which is the second book that I mentioned, was the first book written. And the difficult subject referred back to what happened in the index case, right? So it refers back to what happened when she was doing her dissertation work in Philadelphia and what occurred in those times. And it's sort of haunting her in the second book and tracking her in the second book. And what happened was I gave it to a whole bunch of people to read, um, actually including Michael Bailey and Ray Blanchard, because the second book does explore all the sexuality stuff. And I wanted them them to read it and see what they thought about it. And they, they really enjoyed it. Um, but when I gave it to my best friend, Ellen Fetter at American University as a philosopher, um, and she read it, she said, I love this, but I want to read that first book. I really want to read the first book. She said, it's so clear that there's a whole plot there that we're not getting to see. And that there's this whole basis for the relationship between Maddie and Wolf that I, I, we don't really get to see. And so I shelved the difficult subject and I sat down and I wrote the index case. And I was surprised at how easy it was to write the index case, but she was right. I had so written it as a background in my head that I already knew pretty much what the plot was and what would happen. I just didn't know what happened in every scene. I didn't know what the characters would necessarily be like. So I wrote that book. I wrote the index case. And then I went on to write the third book, which is called The Worst Thing. And that book, you know, takes place after The Difficult Subject. And when I'd finished the third book, I realized, okay, now I've got to go back and deal with the first two books and make them all similar in more clear ways. Like I need to make sure I've got all the timelines right and all the all the references to the characters correct. So then all three books were rewritten before I started the fourth book. So it's been this sort of iterative process before the first book got released, kind of, which is great because it means the first book is solid in terms of what comes later. You know, often when somebody writes a series, they write the first book and then later they kind of figure out new things that should have been in the first book. In this case, the first book is solid because it I went back to it and it was really the second book. So the, the books, I think, will read much more pleasurably to a serial reader um, than they otherwise would because of the fact that there was this delay in, in sharing it mm. with the world. Interesting. Has there been anything uh, that has surprised you in the reception of the book so far? Well, honestly, one of the things that surprised me is that people really enjoy the academic parts of the book. So you you said at the beginning, you're right, that these are not academic novels. These are really meant for general readership. But at the same time, the passage you first chose to read is that passage from her dissertation. And then you read a section which was about um, what happened in the 19th century with exhibition of people with unusual bodies. And my spouse, when he finally read it, so I didn't let him read any of them until the very end <laughs> because I didn't, I was so afraid. He's, I'm so afraid that I would disappoint him. I didn't want him to read it and stop yeah. me by expressing any disappointment. So he read it when the world read it and he's only read the first book. Um, and so he read it and he said, 
I have to tell you, one of the things I really enjoyed was the scholarship in the book. And I was really surprised by that because I don't think of it as a heavy scholarship book. But he said, I really liked reading her dissertation. and I really liked reading all about the the history that you've woven into the book. Although he said he also really liked the plot and the characters and stuff. So that surprised me is that people are really enjoying the brainy stuff in the book. But I'm glad mm-hmm. because I that's part of why I'm writing these is the chance to play with those brainy things and bring those brainy things to a wider audience to play with along with me that they can read it and play with those ideas as well. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it, even though I'm much more kind of anti, anti-woke than you and um, have some probably would have some disagreements with the actual academic book if it came out, the kind of um, shadow book, let's say. Um, I, I found it absolutely just uh, compelling the way that the academic research, um, uh, her understand her understanding of her own research informed the story, and your academic background really informed the way that the story is put together and written. And um, um, uh, those for me were were the most compelling parts of the book, even though I really enjoyed the the murder story and the love story and the kind of more traditional parts of the plot, the things that I most enjoyed were when you were playing with um, ideas. Um, Yeah. And I've definitely heard that from people and I'm glad because the third book is playing with a totally different idea. It's playing with the question of character and who we are in terms of our characters and our personalities. But I'm, I'm glad people are letting me do that because that's been one of the real reasons to do these books uh, is to play with those ideas. I guess, you know, the other thing that surprises me about the reception of the book, and this may sound funny, is that men have enjoyed the books a lot. And I didn't entirely expect that. I expected these books to resonate with women quite a bit because the protagonist is a woman and the life lived is very much a life lived from a gendered point of view, from the experience of having a female body and the experience of having a female sexuality. Um, And by that, I don't mean female heterosexuality. I mean, the pleasure of having female genitals and female sexual response and all of that. But men have been reading the book and telling me they've really, really enjoyed it. So that's great, because I was afraid in some ways that the book would be so heavily gendered that it wouldn't resonate with men. But Mm. uh, men tell me they really enjoy it. Although the men tell me more than the women do that they're really enjoying the sex scenes. So I guess the sex Uh scenes are good. (laughs) Men. (laughs) So, yeah, the sex scenes are are really also fun to write, but they're a very different type of writing than I've done, you know, because I mean, I'm, I've done, I've been a sex researcher, I've studied human sexuality for a long time. But writing a sex scene that's hot is a very different thing. So that's been really um, fun getting to do that. And that's part of why writing in the middle of the night is very helpful. Because when I write in the middle of the night, it's a lot easier to write these emotionally intense and sexually intense scenes, because the whole Mm. world is quiet. And nothing, nothing is impinging on that part of my brain where I can just let it go and just let the writing happen. Um, and so I really enjoy waking up in the middle of the night and I'll just grab my computer and write a scene and I'll deal with it the next day. I mean, obviously things get edited down the line, but the initial, the initial writing of scenes mostly occurs for me in the middle of the night when I wake up. Mm. Is there anything that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? Um, or a question that you've hoped that I might have asked you that I haven't asked? No, this is actually the first interview I've done on this book. So I was not at all sure what you would ask me, but this has been great. <laughs> I, I think I would just um, 
let people know that I decided to self-publish it because I didn't want to get trouble from publishers over some of the stuff I was playing with. And that includes Mm. various sex stuff in the second book. But it also includes, as you've hit on, Iona, that Maddie's sexual life begins in an abusive relationship, but she does not get constructed as a victim or as a survivor. She is a victim and she is a survivor, but that is not the central part of her identity. And Years ago, I talked with a woman who was then my agent about writing a book that would actually be about narrative and would take as its primary text. um, When I was 19, I finally went into therapy about what had happened to me. And the therapist happened to be a long way away geographically from where I was. And so partly because of that and partly because I wanted to be a writer, he allowed me to write long letters to him. And so I wrote these very long letters that we would then discuss when I met with with him in person. And I kept all of those letters. And I have this big stash of letters that I refer to as my therapy notebook. And within it, it's got the narrative of a 19-year-old figuring out her place in the world and what happened. And what I told my, this was during the Me Too movement, the really height of the Me Too movement. I told my agent, I would love to do a book about that and to explain to people why victim and survivor both don't fit what I see myself as. And she got very upset and was like, what happened to you was terrible and you shouldn't understand it any other way other than that it was terrible. And I was like, well, it was formative and it was bad, right? Mm. But it doesn't mean that it is the person that I am now. And she really wanted this simplistic story about what had happened to me. So when I came to the point of thinking about publishing these books, I could have gone to a different type of agent, a fiction agent, and tried to get them to publish it. But I was really afraid that I would end up with a publisher who would tell me that I have to portray Maddie as a constant victim and a constant survivor, that every day of her life has to be about that abuse that occurred. And I was also afraid that they would get upset about me writing about bigendered characters because that's going to upset some people. Or that when I write about people with dwarfism and they're joking around about height and about um, malformation, that it's not appropriate to joke about that stuff. I mean, you call me woke, but I think a lot of people don't think of me that way. Mm -hmm. They think of me as too edgy. And I I didn't want a situation where a publisher stopped me from doing what I wanted to do in these books. So I decided to self-publish them for that reason and also because I could control all sorts of things. I could control the narrative. I could control the, the way it looks. I could control who does the audiobook. I could, could control all of this. So the books are only available um, basically through that system. You can get it on Amazon, and that's fine. Um, but what you should know is I make basically no money <laughs> if you buy it on Amazon. But again, it's fine. So I published it through lulu.com, which allows you to do self-publication. And if you buy it through Lulu, you can buy the paperback or the hardback or the ebook. The ebook is particularly cheap. It's just $5 um, or the equivalent of that abroad. So you can buy it that way, but you can also get it through like Barnes and Noble and through Amazon and that. And that's fine. I don't really, these books are not really meant to be something I'm making lots of money off of. These books are really meant for a place for me to play. So that's why you won't see it in the normal systems usually is because I'm self-publishing them. Right. Well, make sure I put the link to lulu.com. I didn't mean to imply that you were woke, more that I'm I'm a little <laughs> bit more uh, easy to pin down in my kind of, and to predict in my opinions, I think. Um, you are both, um, uh, you both have a lot more in common with a, um, a social justice view of things, I think, um, than than I do. But also you are very both irreverent 
and um, extremely um, um, sort of unafraid um, and very strongly, I, I, I feel that you are very unafraid to think aloud and play with ideas and um, discuss things with people who disagree and also have just a more uh, idiosyncratic um, view on things. So I think it's quite hard to pin down your specific politics, but it's always your your viewpoint is always um, specific and quite fascinating. Um, that's that's certainly how I feel about uh, um, the Galileo's uh, finger book, um, middle finger. Yeah, I, I I think that's right. Is that I'm I'm trying to go to the places where things are a little more open and unpredictable. Um, mm. I get tired of the sort of standardized debates that occur. And that, that's part of why I wanted to debate Colin was to get past the sort of standard discussions of what right, sex and right. gender are and try to inject some level of variation within that. So, no, this has been wonderful. And I, I, I so appreciate you taking time to read the book and to interview me over it because it's really fun to talk with a reader about it and to see what, what resonated for you. I mean, that's one of the pleasures of being a writer, right, is to find out what, what struck readers and where readers took something is a really pleasurable experience for a writer yeah it's uh you know it it's different from your non-fiction books but I certainly have a sense of your kind of voice and approach um and um uh there is in the kind of openness and the creativity and the play um I, I can sense a lot of connections with with your approach to non-fiction things as well um, so I was, uh, it was just a delightful experience. I loved it. And I'm really looking forward to the sequels. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Alice. Uh, I'll put all the references down in the show notes, but uh, thank you for a great conversation. Thank you, Anna. This has been wonderful. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O or patreon.com slash 2 for tea. Have a wonderful week.